and your seats. Um, yeah, we just want to extend a very warm welcome to you. We are so glad you have chosen to spend your uh, one of these prime summer West Michigan mornings with us here at church. Wow, I love that. It makes a huge impact hearing your voices and your song, man, just hearing everybody lift up those songs uh, together. It's beautiful. So thank you for joining us here, lending your voice and your presence to what we're doing this morning. If you're new, um, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we've got these little connect cards you could grab um, either on your way out or some are in the, the backs of the pews there too. Um, we would love to connect with you, grab coffee, hear a little bit more of your story, uh, what God's doing in your life, answer any questions you have and help you get connected to Redemption City Church. So grab one of these connect cards. If you're new or just come talk to myself or Pastor Josh, we would love to get an opportunity to hang out with you, get to know you a little bit more. Just two announcements this morning. Um, the first is, I hope you brought your appetite, because there is going to be a feast uh, spread after the gathering today, and so you definitely need to join us. Um, if you have made plans, you need to cancel them and join us for our hot dog feast downstairs. There's going to be all kinds of toppings, whether you're a Chicago guy or a Detroit guy, like whatever your hot dog of choice is, um, there's going to be some pretty luxuriously lavish toppings to be enjoying. And uh, of course, more importantly, just the fellowship and opportunity to hang out together and get to spend time actually being a family around the table. So please join us after that. And then tonight, tonight we have a family meeting. If you didn't mark it on your calendar, we are going to be meeting as a church tonight on Zoom. Um, put the kids in bed if you have kids. Uh, log on to Zoom. We're going to be sharing a little vision for the fall, where things are going, um, a 10-year church, 10-year anniversary celebration, giving you a quick update on where we're at, finances, all those things. And so you can jump on if you're new and you're curious about what's going on. Feel free to jump on. If you've been around for a long time and you're like, hey, what's going on? I'd love to ask some questions. Be on their uh, family meeting tonight on Zoom, 8 p.m. You could find the link in Slack. And if you don't have Slack, you can click on one of the links on our bulletin there. We'll get you signed up to Slack, or you could find it on our email as well. So those are the announcements this morning. Um, without further ado, I'm going to bring Janie on up here for scripture reading. All right, thank you for that uh, scripture reading. We are, so exciting, in a new book. Um, the Gospel According to Mark. We just kicked off our series last week. If you missed it, you can tune in for the prologue and um, the introduction. But we are just getting underway. We're just getting started. And so um, if you're new and you're like, hey, I'm new around here, great opportunity because we're going to be talking about Jesus uh, all through the summer and fall and all the way through to Easter. We're going to be wrapping up Mark's Gospel with the resurrection celebrating Easter Sunday, hopefully baptizing a bunch of people and uh, celebrating that Jesus is alive. And so, um, yeah, I'm really fired up about this series, excited to be jumping in. If you missed last week in his prologue, the introductory section of the book, Mark introduces us to the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This history-changing, world-impacting news that God is working in history, moving in new and powerful ways, and we get to read all about it in Mark's gospel. Mark is just going to be 
unpacking the good news for us, all the things that we can learn about Jesus, what he has done, and what he is doing in history. We looked briefly at the three names of Jesus, their significance, and the three short episodes that set the stage for Jesus' work. Mark tells us about Jesus in those first 13 verses, and then Jesus himself steps onto the scene here in verses 16 through 20. And we get Mark's introduction to Jesus' message and Jesus' call to discipleship. Two little snippets this morning that Jamie, Janie just read for us. And these opening scenes in Jesus' ministry, is a big idea here, reveal the counterintuitive nature of Jesus' kingdom. They already begin to introduce the kingdom of God coming, breaking into history, uh, coming in an entirely new and unexpected way. And to see that, we're going to need to look more closely at Jesus' message, this message about the kingdom of God, Jesus' call to discipleship, and finally, the disciples' response. And so we're going to be looking through each of those pieces. And my aim for this sermon is that we would hear Jesus' call to discipleship and that we would deepen our own personal commitment to discipleship. Uh, This morning, I've been trying to capture stories of people, modern people, uh, from different backgrounds who are wrestling with Jesus today. I thought it'd be a fun way to start the series um, just with stories of people encountering Jesus in all of his glory and majesty and having to wrestle with him. Last week, I talked a little bit about Jordan Peterson. So somebody kind of out there on, on the right, the way he's wrestling with the claims of Christ and how that would radically uh, rearrange his life. Another great story, and if you haven't heard it, uh, is, yeah, is, is from Rosaria Butterfield. She has a remarkable testimony. She was a professor of English literature at Syracuse University, Um, And she's from the more progressive side. She was an activist, a vegan, lesbian, you know, all the things you expect from, you know, higher education and the elite, you know, cultural bastions of uh, American uh, higher uh, education, classic kind of liberal background, perspective, outlook on life. And Rosaria, in the midst of a research project, you know, all the kind of pan-conservative Christians and how lame they are, uh, ended up getting into a conversation with a pastor, of all people, and struck up this remarkable relationship and began to re-examine the claims of Jesus because she encountered uh, a form of Christianity of people that actually were living out their faith in real and authentic ways. And she started wrestling to it. And I just want to give you, um, because I'm trying to zone in here, is just her wrestling with Christianity, because this is what Mark wants us to do as we go through the gospel. I'm convinced Mark wants us to wrestle with Jesus, and and this is still happening today. People are still wrestling with Jesus. Here's what she said here when she was uh, being interviewed by Marvin Alasky. She said this, she said, I was thinking, do I want to be changed? No, I like my life. I like my girlfriend. I like my house. Thank you very much. I even like my wonderful career. I'm standing in the rushing water of the world. I have my toe in another world because because of all the Bible reading. What will happen if I put my foot in, if I put my whole body in? And so she's just wrestling. What's going to happen if I follow? I have two narratives here. This, you know, liberal, kind of enlightened, higher ed narrative that she was just living the dream in or this narrative in Scripture that's sweeping her off in another uh, direction. And when she finally did take that plunge of discipleship, of following Jesus, you can read about it in the secret thoughts of an un- unlikely convert, a great 
uh, read, she describes it this way. And I just want to give you these uh, maybe two sentences from that book that describe her conversion experience. She said, conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. Conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. Sometimes I wonder when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired result of those prayers. And so I love that, right? Rosaria, here's a person who an entire worldview just came into contact with the Bible and it brought her into this comprehensive chaos. And I think too often here in West Michigan, Jesus is kind of the status quo and, you know, everybody's a good Christian person and, you know, we all know enough about Jesus to get by. Uh, But what I love about Mark's gospel, and what I love about this series and its hopes is that as you encounter the living Christ, that, that it would wreck your life in some pretty beautiful, powerful, profound ways that some of that comprehensive chaos might be unleashed in your life and the lives of those who are exploring the claims of Jesus. So let's pray that God might do that, and then we'll dive into our text uh, this morning. And so, Father, here in Uh, West Michigan, it's easy uh, for us to hear about Jesus, to have secondhand knowledge of Jesus. Uh, Feels like uh, in some conservative pockets of Grand Rapids, it's just the thing to do, uh, that everybody's uh, in some kind of a church mode. And so, uh, Father, as we study the life of Jesus, would he just pop off the page in all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his power, God? And we come face to face um, not with some secondhand Jesus, not with uh, some Jesus of our own imagination, not some Jesus of the American culture that we live in, but would the real Jesus meet us right here, right now, uh, as we gather as your people to study uh, Jesus in detail. And so would you come by the power of your spirit? Would you open our eyes to see Jesus? We pray it all in his name. Amen. So we are... Jumping in here, and I said we're going to start with Jesus' message. If you were following along with our text here in Mark 1, um, we see that Mark opens uh, his account of Jesus' ministry in verse 14 through 15 by quoting Jesus directly. We get from Jesus' own mouth what Jesus is all about. So in verse 14 through 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The first thing uh, we notice is that for Mark, John's imprisonment signals an important moment in Jesus' ministry. John is going to be arrested. We know from the other gospels that he's eventually going to be executed. Uh, And it's remarkable, right? John, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord, Um, we would think, here's a guy that's going to get a prominent role in Jesus' earthly kingdom, but Mark shows us that the forerunner to the Christ, the one who would proclaim Jesus' coming, is going to be arrested. He's going to be executed. He's going to suffer and die. Suffering emerges from the very opening verses in Mark's gospel as an early theme, right? The arrest of John the baptizer here in these early verses anticipates and foreshadows the suffering that we're going to see in Christ in his ministry. Uh, one commentator said that Mark's gospel is like is a passion narrative with a short 
introduction, we see already here the cross is casting a shadow back onto Jesus' ministry as John is being arrested and brought to death. And, uh, of course, Christians um, reading Mark's gospel, um, especially if this is the time of Nero's persecution, this wouldn't have been lost on them, right? That persecution would be a reality for followers of Christ. They'd be aware suffering is going to be a part of the Christian life. Happened to John the Baptist, it's happened to Jesus, and it's going to happen to all of his followers. So we see this theme of suffering emerging early in the gospel, and we'll trace it as it works its way through. But with John arrested, the time was right for Jesus to step on the scene. Uh, All the time that's been prepared by John's preaching, Jesus has arrived on the scene, and Jesus starts his ministry, not at the epicenter, where John was ministering in Jerusalem and Judea, all the people coming out to him in the desert, but he starts his ministry from the margins in Galilee. Mark tells us that he proclaimed, came proclaiming the gospel of God. I love it. This is like the broadest definition of the gospel you could possibly have. Simply spoke, stated, God is on the move. It's the good news that God has broken into history. If you are a Chronicles of Narnia fan, Aslan is on the move. That is the word from the opening lines of the gospel. God is himself the gospel, and he is breaking into history. He's on the move in some rather earth-shattering ways that we're going to see as this gospel unfolds. And it's interesting, if you are here last week, Mark opened his gospel with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here he's equating the same gospel with the work of God breaking into history. The good news about Jesus is the good news of God on the move at work in history. And Mark fleshes this out by quoting Jesus himself in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The awaited time preached by John is here. It's fulfilled. It's completed. All the Old Testament promises and prophecies are finally coming to their fruition. God's kingdom is about to break into history. It's interesting. Mark doesn't pause to unpack what he means by the time being fulfilled or the kingdom of God being at hand, right? Mark's contemporaries would have had lots of ideas what this looks like, uh, but Mark is just going to let this concept be fleshed out throughout the gospel. Mark is all about declaring the good news, and then he wants to show us what it looks like in action. So he doesn't pause to spell it out or unpack it in all of its grandeur and beauty and Old Testament background. He's going to allow this concept of the kingdom of God to just land on us as this series unfolds. We're going to see that kingdom dynamically working and active and moving in the most unexpected, counterintuitive ways as Mark's ministry unfolds. Uh, But it is helpful to understand that for Jesus' contemporaries, they had categories for thinking about the kingdom of God. In fact, there were four primary groups in Israel, four primary sects in the first century that were reflecting on what it looked like to wait for the kingdom of God. And so if you will indulge me in a brief history lesson here, I want to set some background for you of how Jesus' original hearers would have heard about the kingdom of God, what it would have looked like, and the different streams, the different anticipations coming into it. So, so four different groups here, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. These are four different groups, right? And they all had four different responses to the kingdom of God, what it was going to look like when it came in power. I have some brief descriptions here from Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, 
which I find to be super helpful here. And you guys can't read that really tiny writing, so I'm just going to read it. <laughs> the Pharisees were concerned about Jewish compromise to Greek culture. They believed God could not act to bring the kingdom of Israel remain polluted. To combat this compromise, they called for an urgent commitment to two things. Complete separation from pagan corruption and radical obedience to the Torah. To Pharisees, separation and obedience were two sides to one essential truth. They emphasized the aspects of Torah law that marked the Jewish people as unique. So circumcision, food laws, observing the Sabbath, assuming new, assumed new significance as boundary markers that divided faithful Jews from faithless pagans. The Pharisees operated primarily in the synagogues as teachers of law and the oral tradition. So the Pharisees were the conservatives, right? They were the good church people following the law, trying to be faithful to Jesus in the context in which they lived. Uh, the next group of people is the Essenes, right? The Essenes were driven by the same desire to reverse assimilation to Greek culture that continued to plague Israel, but their approach was different. They decided to withdraw from culture. They said, culture is corrupt. It's been corrupted. We need to withdraw. Since they believed that Greek culture had become deeply rooted in Israel, the Essenes turned their back on all of it. They believed that they alone were the true Israel. Many withdrew to form an alternative community in the desert outside Jericho where they studied the scriptures, prayed, and enforced careful adherence to the Torah. They believed that faithfulness to the Torah would bring God back to restore the fortunes of Israel. So we've got the Pharisees, right? Adherence to the law, trying to live out faithfully to God in their everyday life. We have the Essenes who said, cultures, we just got to abandon culture. We're moving out to the desert. We're going to live in our own self-contained communities. We're going to preserve the faith for the next generation. Then you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? These are the progressives. They're the liberals. They were the teachers of the law, recognized representatives of the mainline Jewish religion, kind of like the mainline churches today and in our culture. Along with the Pharisees, they were members of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Because they depended on the favor of Romans for their influential positions in society, the priests and Sadducees did not have the revolutionary spirit of the Pharisees and Essenes. They maintained their power by collaborating with the Romans so at every reason to maintain the status quo. So, so here are a group of people, right, that are just fitting in. They're going with the status quo. This is our more progressive group of folks. And finally, there's the zealots, right? We've got to have the full spectrum here. The zealots were an organization that had gathered around violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. They were following Judas Maccabee, who said, let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And so they were battling the Romans, willing to give their lives, willing to die, willing to be martyred for uh, the cause. And while the names, and I know this history lesson is tedious here, while the names are certainly different, their approach looks pretty familiar, I think, to the way Christians think about society today. Today we have people like the zealots that just want to fight, right? We've got culture warriors that are out there. We've got to take it to the libs. We've got to stick it to the dems, yeah. And this, like, we're going to go out there, you know, we're losing America. We've got to win America back, the moral majority, whoever that group of people were. They're ready to go on the offensive. Not all of them are willing to use violence, but on the extreme fringes, you know, there are people that are bombing abortion clinics or doing crazy stuff like that trying to bring Christianity back through violent means. Uh, there are also Christians like people like the Essenes today that think American culture is lost, right? It's, it's not just that, like, you know, we're in a post-Christian culture. Like, the culture is a total loss, right? We need to withdraw, move out, maybe not into the desert, but at least into our own little 
uh, little communes, you know, in our little homeschool communities out in the wilderness and all. <laughs> and so, you know, if we just circle the wagons, build our bomb shelters, you know, uh, we'll outlast, you know, this culture when it finally collapses and decays, you know, we'll be able to preserve, you know, the riches of Western civilization and pass them along to the next generation. There's streams of that today, Christians that have just given up on culture altogether. And then, of course, the Sadducees, right, calling for compromise with the spirit of the age. Um, this is probably the most tempting for us, right, sitting comfortably here in Grand Rapids. Let's just go with the flow, right, of, you know, why don't we just compromise with the values and the spirit of the age, things that our culture values. We can find ways to get behind that, right? We can get into the themes that are happening there. We're in the city. We can go with the trends and the themes and celebrate the things the city celebrates. All of those things are live options, but Jesus enters the scene and blows up all of those old options. You know, the approach of the Pharisees, the approach of the Essenes, the approach of the Zealots, the approach of the Sadducees, Jesus is coming on the scene with an entirely different kind of message, something entirely new. He invites people to repent of their old ways of living, to literally turn away from all of the old ways of doing life, and believe that God is acting in a new way in history. It's a call to repent from old ways of life that just don't work, ways that are just stuck in the ruts of our culture, ways, humanly speaking, we think we can bring about the kingdom of God. He's calling people to repent of all of those projects, humans' projects to bring about the kingdom of God and believe that God himself is acting in the person of Jesus to bring the kingdom of God. He's calling us to reject our natural instincts, to fight, to withdraw, or to compromise, and believe that he is, in fact, on the move, doing something new in the world. And so our invitation, right, as we are here, sitting here, 21st century Grand Rapids, is wondering, are we going to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, on the move today, that he's still saving people, he's still upsetting the status quo, he's still moving in different ways in different places, um, stirring God's people's hearts to the work that he has called us to here in the city? Or are we just going to kind of be lulled to complacency, be just kind of go with the status quo, the comfort and security of Grand Rapids, and just kind of roll with it? Of course, Jesus' kingdom continually defied the expectations of his contemporaries. We could see this immediately in the way Jesus' ministry unfolds, right? Jesus' contemporaries were waiting for the kingdom to come crashing in with angel armies descending, with an armed insurrection, with a holy war against the Romans. And all of those different sects, well, they all had different approaches to waiting for the kingdom. They all had pretty much the same expectation, that when the kingdom of God arrived and it arrived in power, it would come with overwhelming force it would not be resisted, right? It would come in such a way that everyone would see it. It'd be visible. It'd be powerful. It'd be demonstrable. It would finally liberate God's people from the Romans and bring them into their own space under their own king with their own ruler. And so that expectation, Jesus immediately flips on his head when he starts his ministry. Jesus starts his ministry in a rather unexpected way. He calls a bunch of fishermen from Galilee to overturn the world. And so we pick that story up in verses 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in their boat, mending the nets, and immediately... 
He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. Jesus' first act of his kingdom ministry, of inaugurating this kingdom, of bringing this kingdom into the world, is to call a bunch of fishermen in a backwater province of Galilee. And discipleship, um, while we might think today, is kind of part and partial of our evangelical culture, uh, it was also a massive and significant part of first century Judaism. Jesus is, once again, he's speaking into the concepts and ideas of the culture in which he's living, but he's going to radically subvert and change them. First century Judaism had a fully developed educational system to pass on the teaching of Torah to the next generation. So children began their study at the age of four through five in Beth Beit Sefer, which is their elementary school where they would study the Torah. Disciples would pretty much get an immersion in the first five books of the Bible. So you're talking Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Many of these children would memorize the Torah in Bet Sefar, that school. They would be devoting themselves to, now I know, puts us a little bit to shame with our uh, Bible memory today, uh, but these guys would be digging into the scriptures. If you made it through elementary school um, and you're getting up to, Uh, a little bit older, the best students continued their study while learning a trade as like young teenagers in Beit Midrash, which would be secondary school, also taught by a rabbi uh, of the community. And they would add not only to their study the Torah, they'd also add to their study uh, the prophets and the writings. And so at that point, they've got the entire Old Testament they're working through. Some of these students would memorize Genesis all the way through the end of the Bible, through Malachi. Like, I mean, this is a non-digital age. So remarkable world in which they were living, but their discipleship process involved a massive immersion in Bible study. And this is just for young kids and then teenagers who would be studying. Uh, And then Ray Vanderlaan says, a very few, the most outstanding Beit Midrash students, sought permission to study with a famous rabbi, often leaving home to travel with him for a lengthy period of time. These students were called Talmudim. And so if you made it through elementary school, if you made it through secondary school, Beit Midrash, if you got to study your entire Bible, then the very apex of the education system in the, in the first century world was this school of discipleship. And it wasn't a school like we think of today where you simply showed up to class and learned the Bible. This was a 100% immersion with the life of your rabbi. You would live with him. You would see, you would do whatever he did. You would listen to whatever he said. You would follow him around everywhere. One of the uh, blessings, one of my favorite blessings of this time is that may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Uh, Disciples were meant to just spend time just immersed in the life of their Rabbi, And so first century discipleship was more like an apprenticeship in the trades or a medical residency where you got a full immersion into the life of your rabbi, into the life of Jesus. And so Jesus speaks into this tradition, this remarkable system, which is still happening today. Kids, little Jewish kids are still going to Beit Sefar. They're still getting that Bible training in school. They're still doing Beit Midrash today. Little Hebrew kids right down the street over on Michigan. You could still go see them do it. Temple Emmanuel or or, uh, some of the other ones in town. But Jesus does something very different. Jesus steps on the scene 
and calls ordinary fishermen to follow him, to be his disciples, to be his Talmudim. And what you had in that, of course, first century culture, like getting in to be study with one of the rabbis was like the greatest privilege, the highest apex. I mean, like getting into Harvard in our day today, studying at some great Ivy League school to be uh, able to study with one of the great rabbis of the time, to hear their interpretation of Torah, to see how they lived it out, see how they walked it out, see how it worked its way into their relationships and into their lifestyle. But Jesus flips the entire script by inviting ordinary working class people to be his followers, to be his Talmudim. Uh, this would have absolutely just blown the minds of first century people. Like, what? what does, these fishermen guys are going to be the disciples of Jesus. It's a remarkable revolution where Jesus is calling everyone into this kind of intimate, beautiful, powerful, deep discipleship relationship. And instead of demanding proof of their competency and proficiency, which rabbis would demand of all their students, Jesus promises to make something of these disciples, to make them fishers of men. And so we see here some incredibly beautiful news in a first century context full of different options of how to bring the kingdom of God into the world. Uh, First century context that had a very elaborate uh, process to disciple and train the next generation of faithful Jewish people. Jesus introduces us into, welcomes us in, invites us into the most profound uh, personal relationship with him. And he opens the doors to everyone. That invitation is open to us today, not based on our performance, not based on our credentials, not based on our devotion and dedication, uh, but simply because Jesus has called us by name. Jesus is building his kingdom, and he's doing it in the most counterintuitive way. He's calling people by name, changing them from the inside out, and promising to make something of them, to turn them into fishers of men, to turn them into little Christ's doing the work that he did. Have you heard that call in your own life? Has Jesus called you by name? Or does that feel like something maybe reserved for the pastors and missionaries and vocational ministry people? What Jesus wanted to do with this call to discipleship, has he inaugurated his kingdom and kicked it off? He wanted to invite everyone in. He wanted to invite people from the most ordinary uh, to the most educated. He brought zealots and he brought tax collectors, he brought Pharisees, uh, people from all the different classes of Hebrew society, Israelite society at that time, and invited them into this personal relationship with him. Do you see yourself as someone called by Jesus to be his disciple, to follow him, uh, to look like him increasingly more and more in your life? Do you see yourself as a fisher of men, right? That's what Jesus' mission, to turn us into people We're not skillful with fish, though that's great to be uh, skillful in, but skillful at ministering, caring for uh, the people around us. So that's the call. Jesus launches his kingdom. God is on the move, but he does it through this process of discipleship by inviting ordinary people to walk with him, to be with him, uh, to become increasingly like him in the way they lived there. Lives. So how will the disciples respond to this remarkable invitation, right? How would you respond to this invitation here? I, 
I mean, even for a 21st century audience, right, it's pretty mind-blowing to think of someone walking up to someone who's been in a trade their entire lives, whose family has been in that trade for their entire lives. Possibly their family has been fishing the Sea of Galilee for generations. And Jesus walks up to these guys, these tradesmen who were accomplished professionals. I mean, sometimes fishermen get a little bit of a, you know, they're kind of butt of jokes or something, like uneducated bumpkins. These guys were, were professional fishermen. They exported fish from the Sea of Galilee all over the Mediterranean world. So these were, these were competent, uh, middle-class business people. Uh, and Jesus in, invites them in, but he invites them to leave everything behind, the skills that they had learned, the trade that they knew so well, uh, their lifestyle, um, what we can tell from uh, at least the sons of Zebedee. They had servants. They were well off. Um, They were running a thriving business, and Jesus invites them to leave it all behind to follow him. And that should tell us something, right, about the impression Jesus had on people, right? If someone asked me to quit my job on the spot and follow Jesus, I'd be like, you crazy, right? <laughs> this is not going to happen. Right? I'm not doing that. Like, I need assurances here that, that everything's going to work out. You better give me a good, uh, a good counteroffer, and uh, there better be a good job description. There better be good benefits. There better be a good 401K involved. And like, <laughs> like, these guys, man, they are offered an opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, to be with Jesus, and they leave everything. I mean, this is the disciples at their best. They don't have it all figured out. They don't know what will be involved or what this will cost them. But they take this first bold step of faith, believing that God is on the move. And so they leave everything to follow him, right? That, that should tell us the kind of Jesus we're serving, the kind of Jesus that says God is on the move, invites people to be a part of that. And people leave their livelihood, the very thing that supported their family, to follow him. And in case we're tempted to put these disciples on a pedestal, Mark is going to show them saying and doing all kinds of foolish things throughout this gospel. But here they get it. They realize the important thing, right, is to be focused on Jesus, to center their lives around Jesus. And and they, they go all in with it. Have you heard Jesus personally call you by name? Have you made a commitment to follow him? This could involve a career change, but it could also involve re-envisioning your current career as a calling from God himself. What parts of your life are going to need to be reorganized around God and his kingdom? I always find it helpful to think about your time and your talents and your treasure. If your life were, you were to re-envision your life being radically reorganized around Jesus What would have to change? What would have to go? What would be the hardest part of your life to surrender to him? What is that part of yourself that you would love to just hold back from Jesus? Because discipleship is an all-in proposition. It is an all-in following Jesus. It's an all or nothing. You can can keep your old life and uh, live that way, or you can have this new life, but you can't do both. You can't sit on the fence. Jesus is calling for a decisive Decision And the disciples step up to the plate. They see Jesus, his glory, and his majesty, and they radically realign their lives around them, around that. One of the biggest privileges um, of being a church planner is watching people 
jump all in starting something new. Uh, I got the privilege of launching a church almost 10 years ago now and seeing people want to be a part of that mission. There are several families that literally sold their homes out in the suburbs to move in and be a part of the work here in the city. Some of those families are still here today. They had no idea what this was going to involve, what this adventure would look like as they stepped into this context with this young pastor who had no idea what he was doing, unlike Jesus, and, you know, would be a part of this whole adventure along the way. Uh, And that journey took some people on some pretty crazy adventures. Similarly, we have had some um, pretty amazing students, some pretty awesome Talmudim who have come along in Redemption City from college and seminary and been a part of the work here, worked jobs, done ministry, done seminary, raised families, and just jumped all in to the work here at Redemption City Church. It's amazing to see in our church, you know, a culture of discipleship, people willing uh, to take that call of Jesus seriously and radically change and radically realign their lives. Uh, This call is going to look different for each person, Um, But it always includes, and we're going to see this throughout the series, repentance. We've got to turn away from all of those shiny things that might distract us or allure us. And it always involves believing in Jesus, trusting that Jesus is launching out something new, and stepping out in faith to follow him, to believe that what he's doing, believe in the kingdom that he is calling. This is called a discipleship that connects these disciples to Christ and his kingdom. It's stepping out in faith in the calling that God has for them, that simple call to put one foot in front of the other, follow Jesus, leave their nets, leave behind all that is familiar, step out into the unknown of following Jesus that launches them out into this kingdom journey, this kingdom adventure that we are going to be on for the next couple of months. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week, and they mentioned... uh, this quote from Richard Halverson, uh, the, uh, he was a Senate chaplain. He said, in the beginning, uh, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. We're business. And we look <laughs> at this beautiful thing Jesus started And God help us, right, from becoming simply a philosophy, from becoming simply uh, a culture that we just kind of write home about, uh, simply becoming a business, right, which church is so much of in this American context, man. We just long for our church to be a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ and his kingdom. People going all in for discipleship right here, right now in our context, wherever God has planted you and placed you, each person here uh, has remarkable opportunities to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world, to be a part of his kingdom. And this series is an invitation to be a part of that uh, journey. And so let me pray that God would use that and uh, use this sermon to nudge us out into that journey. And so, Father, we thank you for... Jesus, who's at the center of everything we do, we thank you for this beautiful vision of this good news, God breaking into history uh, radically to change lives and change cultures and societies and ultimately change the world. We thank you that we're a part of that 
here, today, right here in Grand Rapids, as we step into the journey of discipleship, we become a part of this kingdom movement, this inside-out kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, this, this grassroots kingdom of God that's spreading all over the world. God, as we study the life of Jesus, would we be captivated more and more by Jesus, by his glory, by his grace, by his goodness? Would we be lost in wonder, and would we become deeper disciples, deeper followers of Jesus, and would the impact be felt here in our church as we go deep with Jesus and would it be felt out in our community and what it would ultimately experience out to the nations as we send out pastors and planners and missionaries. Uh, God, would you bless that work? And we pray it all in Jesus' name.